The sermon tonight is from Galatians 6, verses 12 through 15. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good afternoon. It's, uh, it's good to be here. My name is Wade, and um, I've been here a couple times, and uh, I wish today were under different circumstances. Of course, we're all thinking about Chris and his, uh, his family. Um, but uh, I've been asked to, to preach, and I'm happy to be here to bring the word to you. And um, I want to start off with uh, something that I just saw actually on the way here. I drove from Hayward up 101 North, and um, there's an overpass right before the Cesar Chavez exit. And um, in big, bold letters, it says, this party sucks. And I have no idea what it's referring to. I'm, maybe it's a political party. Maybe it's referring to this metaphorical party that we have here on earth. I don't know, but it was, this party sucks. And um, I was thinking about it, and uh, this might be a bit of a reach, but um, maybe this party does suck. Uh, maybe life on this, in this, on this world, maybe it is really hard, and maybe it's not what we want. And isn't that why God breaks into this planet. Isn't that, when we read about the humiliation of Christ earlier in the liturgy, is that not why Christ has come? Because really there is a lot of suck here, and I'm not sure if I should be uh, saying this word in church, but I think we all feel it, right? That things are not the way that we want them to be. There is heartache and pain and death and frustration and anxiety and depression and what is God going to do about it? What is God going to do about that? God has entered this world as a little baby. And this little baby, he grew up, um, the man Jesus Christ. And this Sunday is the Sunday before Holy Week. So I'm, I'm glad to see that you guys are going to observe Holy Week, um, Palm Sunday, a week from today. Um, and in the coming days, we're going to remember and focus on the days leading up to Jesus' death and the subsequent resurrection. And Jesus, Palm Sunday, you might know that this is the day that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, the triumphal entry. And he rides into Jerusalem with a whole lot of fanfare. There's joy, there is happiness, but only Jesus knew the full extent of that moment. Only he knew the full significance of that moment. And there's a verse in the Gospel of Luke that, that says that Jesus, as he's entering Jerusalem, as when he thinks about the, the days ahead of him, um, the, the days drawing up to, uh, to for, for him to be taken up into heaven, um, he's very aware of all that is happening. And uh, there's a prophecy in Isaiah 50 that it says that Jesus, he set his face like flint as he neared the day of his execution. Um, he set his face like flint. Flint is this very hard type of rock. It's a type of rock that was used to make tools before um, the modern tools that we have today. And when the prophet Isaiah, when he writes that his face was set like flint, he's saying that Jesus, he's resolute 
on his journey to the cross, that nothing could distract him from it. He is set. His eyes are on it. His mind is focused on that moment when he will be placed on that cross. In the letter to the Corinthians, Paul, he tells the church that he was determined to know nothing except them, nothing among them except Christ Jesus and him crucified. Christ Jesus, not just him as a man, but Jesus Christ crucified. That Paul said, I resolved to know nothing but this, that this would mark my ministry, that this would mark my life, that when people think, when they cut me open, they see what? Jesus in Christ crucified. And is this true of First Presbyterian San Francisco? I, I minister at a church in Castro Valley called Indelible Grace Church. And this is what I want for my church as well, that we not be some type of social club, that we not, are not uh, cool and hip. If that happens, great, but that's never happened at my church. Um, but when people are at my church, I want them to know Christ and him crucified. And my intent today, as we look at the text, is for us to take on the attitude of Paul, that we would know and desire nothing but Jesus and him crucified. Why? Because Jesus is worthy of the hour, the next hour that we're going to spend together. Jesus is worthy of Holy Week. Jesus is worthy of our uh, worship on Resurrection Sunday. Jesus is worthy of our entire lives. And to reference Paul again in 1 Corinthians, we cannot think of Jesus apart from the cross in these days and in our life. This idea of Christ crucified, this is enough for us to think about for all of eternity. And if you've uh, read through the book of Revelation, there's this really amazing quote that um, in, in Revelation, and the grand scene of worship is not of all creatures worshiping Jesus, um, it's all creatures worshiping Jesus crucified. Worthy is a lamb who was slain. This is the identity of Jesus for all eternity, not just the lamb, but the lamb that was slain. This is what you and I and the angels will be singing one of these days. For all eternity, Jesus is identified by his death. And as we read through Galatians today, um, it was about the instrument of Jesus' crucifixion, the cross, the cross. We need to fix our eyes on the cross here, the week before this beginning of Holy Week. We need to focus our eyes on the cross. And just like Jesus, not just that we would focus on it, but that our lives would be identified by the cross. Um, the old preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says this, if the cross is not central to you, you are not a Christian. If the cross is not central to you, you are not a Christian. And for those of us who follow Jesus, is this true of us? Do we take time to think about whether or not this is true of our own lives? Not just that we attend Sunday services, not just that we read the Bible or fellowship with other believers, but is this instrument of death, is a cross central to our own lives? This, this very offensive thing. We can't be neutral to it. We can't get used to it. We shouldn't be comfortable with it. Because it not only says something about us, the need for a savior, the reality of our sin, it also demands something from us. So in the next few moments, I want to just look at, look at, the, look at Galatians 6, this, these few verses. I've got three points, the offense of the cross, boasting in the cross, and the new creation as a result of the cross. So my first point is this, the offense of the cross. 
So Paul, he begins the passage with reference to a group of teachers in the Galatian church. The Judaizers, they're called. And these Judaizers, they're teaching those in the church that believers, they have to be circumcised in order to be accepted by God. And if you've studied the Old Testament, um, you might remember that circumcision, it was a marker that identified the people of God, the Jews. So in order to be identified with the people of God, you had to get circumcised if you were a male. And here, Paul comes in and he preaches this, the gospel of salvation by grace through faith alone. And these false teachers, they came into the Galatian church and they were telling the church, "Um, yes to grace, yes to faith, but that's not enough. You have to do more. You have to add to that. There has to be circumcision as well if you want to be accepted by God. And Paul, he, he hears the message of these Judaizers and he spells out their motivations in teaching this. They want to avoid persecution by those who accuse the Galatian church of not following the law. Uh, this is verse 12, and then in verse 13, Paul presses it further. Not only did they want the Galatians to be circumcised to avoid persecution, they wanted it to, so that they could be admired by others because it meant, that they could, it meant that they could say, I've done something to earn favor with God. Look at me. So these Judaizers, they are taking on this, this Old Testament concept, um, circumcision as an, as an identifier. It was something that made them them. And Paul, as he's thinking about what they're saying, he's saying this, no, it can't be circumcision. This adds nothing to your standing with God. It does nothing to make you more acceptable. And you're saying that there's more that you need to do to, that's required and this, this goes kind of against our natural way of thinking because um, we all want to be identified with something that matters. These, these Judaizers, they were looking at circumcision as an identifier. We all want to be um, identified with something. Um, I don't know if you guys know, there's a, a skateboarder by the name of Tony Hawk, um, perhaps the, the most famous skateboarder of all time. He's got the video games. He's been around for decades. Um, he's still really active. Um, about a year ago, Tony Hawk, this, uh, this really famous skateboarder, he retired his famous Ollie 540 move, the Ollie 540. And if you're not familiar with um, skateboarding, this is, uh, this is the, the trick that, Ollie, that um, Tony Hawk pioneered. This is when he goes up into the air and he spins not 180 degrees, not 360, but 540 degrees. Um, when they go up the, the ramp, so one and a half rotations when they go up into the air and then they land. And over the years, Tony Hawk, he's done more impressive things. Uh, other skateboarders have done more impressive tricks. But the 540, this is what people know him for. You can't think of the Ollie 540 without thinking about Tony Hawk. Now, Tony Hawk, um, when, he retired, or when he retired this trick last year, um, he was 52 years old. And the reason why he stopped doing it was uh, because it was taking a toll on his body, this skateboarding. Um, But he attempted, he wanted to do it one last time. Um, And this was a big deal in the sports world. I think uh, Sports Illustrated covered it. Um, He had a film crew follow him on the day that he he did his final 540. And when he finally landed it, he, he missed a few times, but when he finally landed it, he fell to his knees and he started weeping because he completed his final Ollie 540. This was a really big deal. And why was it such a big deal to him? Why was it such a big deal to not just the skateboarding world, but to the sports world? 
Why was it worthy of having a professional film crew film it? Why did he break down in tears? It's because Tony Hawk pioneered the Ali 540, and the Ali 540 became a part of him. People identified the Ali 540 with Tony Hawk. It's because he worked hard to perfect it, and he took pride in it. That's Tony Hawk. But what about us? What is your Ollie 540? What's something that you've made a part of yourself? Or what's something that you're striving to make a part of yourself? What's essential to you as a human being? What's your, is it your positive attitude? Is it your charity or generosity? Is it your financial savvy? Is it your affable personality? Is it your ability to stay cool under pressure? Is it your skill at regulating your emotions? Is it your list of accomplishments? What is it that you consider an essential part of yourself? That you, you, can't, you don't want anyone to think of you apart from this thing. That's your boast. That's your boast. Or to look at look, uh, some negative questions to help you identify it. What is it that you feel threatened by? What criticisms sting you the most? Who or what are you most afraid of? And when we ask these questions, when we consider them, consider them they, they shine a light on not only the things that we care about, but the things that we pride ourselves on, and perhaps even the things that we build our life on. That's your boast. And Paul, when he writes to these Galatians, he says that the cross wipes all that out. The cross says, all those things count for nothing. All these things count for nothing when it comes to God's view of you. And let me push it a bit further. The cross not only says that these things count for nothing, but the cross says that actually you're worse off than you think you are. I mentioned earlier that um, we shouldn't get too comfortable with the idea of the cross, and that's because the people who knew about the cross 2,000 years ago when Jesus was killed, they weren't comf comfortable with it either. This was a shameful thing. The Jews, they looked at the cross and they considered it a sign of God's curse. The God of the universe, if you were on this cross, you were the cursed being. The Gentiles, they saw the cross as the most damning judgment on a person. This was a public spectacle designed to shame the enemies of Rome. And it wasn't just the physical torture, this cross. One commentator, he says that the shame of the cross is uh, equivalent to the shame of being put on the registered sex offenders list. Imagine that your name is on there and your neighbors can look up your name. Um, and they go, whoa, there's a registered sex offender living two blocks from me. That was equivalent to the shame of the cross. It meant that if you were placed on the cross, if you were headed to the cross, no one wanted to have anything to do with you. I mean, you, you look at the, uh, what happened to Will Smith in the, in the past few days. He slapped Chris Rock and people are going, whoa, trying to disassociate themselves with him because they don't want to be close to that. Fleming Rutledge um, she makes this observation. She says that the goal of crucifixion was the total annihilation of a person. The cross was about shame. It was about dehumanization. So what does the cross say about us? 
for those of us who live under the shadow of the cross. Imagine that the people that you care about the most, you ask them, hey, um, be really honest with me. Can you tell me, uh, do you like me? Are you, are you, what do you think of me? These people that you care about the most, the people that you love the most, and what if they said to you, um, hands down, no lie, I'm disappointed in the type of person that you are. I want nothing to do with you anymore. Or imagine sitting down with your manager and, um, during your annual review, and um, he or she says, you haven't met any metric. You haven't contributed to the team. It was a huge mistake to hire you. You've got until the end of the afternoon to clear your desk. Or imagine your spouse telling you that they're embarrassed to be married to you and that they regret ever meeting you. Or if you have children, imagine 20 years from now, I have uh, two boys at home. Um, 20 years from now, they tell you that they hate the life that you provided for them and they resent you for messing them up and they want nothing to do with you anymore. These are all terrible, horrible things. And what does the cross say? The cross says, you're even worse off than that. You're worse off than that. Because our sins, the ways in which we've offended God by rejecting his rule over our lives, this deserves the punishment of the cross. And this is the really offensive thing about the cross. The cross says that we're failures. The cross says that we are sinners, that we are not enough, that our efforts to clean ourselves up, this is not enough. Your promises to God are not enough. Your church attendance is not enough. Good theology, not enough. Your progressivism or your conservatism are not enough. Your kindness, your sacrifices for other people, not enough. Your suffering is not enough. None of these things can make up for the way that you've offended God. And the offense of the, the, offense of the cross, again, as you look in the coming weeks at the cross, the offense of the cross is that you deserve to be shamed and tortured on the cross. If you want to understand Christianity, then you have to understand the big insult that the cross is to you. If you aren't disturbed by the truth of the cross, then Good Friday and, and the Resurrection Sunday, these aren't going to make any sense to you. But there is good news. There is good news. Um, verse 14, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, Paul here, as he's looking at the cross, he's saying that boasting is not bad as long as you're boasting in the right thing. The false teachers of, uh, in the Galatian church, they were boasting in circumcision. Um, identify with this, and then you'll be X, Y, and Z. It's going to be a good thing. As something to take pride in. And in fact, they, 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 they said that this was, you could stake your, your eternity on it, not just your identity on it. So keep that in mind when you think about what it means to boast. What do you boast in? What do you base your life on? What do you build your life on? What is your identity founded upon? What you boast in is the center of your personality. It's what you've chosen to build your life on. It determines how other people view you. What you boast in is the grid by which you evaluate the world. It's the, these are the principles that drive your thinking and your actions. Your intellect, your relational savvy, your charisma, your kindness, what is it that you're going to build your identity on? And Paul, again, he says, you can't build your life on these things. You can't build your identity on these things. 
Look at this instrument of shame and death. And make that what you build your life on. Make that your boast. Build your identity on that. Stake your identity. Stake your eternity on that. Make your life about that. And nothing else. And Paul here, he says that the only thing we should boast in is the cross. We glory in the cross. We make a big deal of this shameful instrument. I imagine that um, in this room there are there's some competence uh, as you do your work. Um, you might be proud of the things that you've accomplished in your life. Um, you might have invested in good organizations or causes, perhaps First Pres, perhaps your company, perhaps your, your social circles, and you've spent a lot of time developing and improving yourself, and there is, those things are awesome. Continue to do those things. Those are good things unless they become central to who you are as a person. And I think we underestimate how easily we can let other things become central in our lives. How can we determine what's central? Um, there, there's a, an interesting phenomenon in, uh, in the celebrity world, and um, this is a real thing. I looked it up. That famous people, that they'll ensure parts of themselves um, they'll ensure their body parts. They'll ensure certain aspects of themselves. So uh, Bruce Springsteen, the boss, when he went on tour a while ago, he insured his voice for $6 million. So Bruce Springsteen doing these four-hour uh, concerts. It's, it's one of my life goals to attend a Bruce Springsteen concert. Um, but his voice was insured for $6 million. This mattered to him. Mariah Carey, on the other hand, not $6 million. $35 million dollars. Mariah Carey's vocal cords are worth that much to her, 35 million. The soccer star, Cristiano Ronaldo, he insured his legs for $140 million. This soccer player, he insured his legs for that much. Um, Taylor Swift, not a soccer player, but you may know her, um, one of the biggest stars in the world right now. She had her, not her voice, but she had her legs insured for $40 million when she went on tour a few years ago. These are what, this is what celebrities do. And these people, these celebrities, they, they can perceive that these parts of them, that these are valuable, that they're part of their persona or their image. Their careers depend on these things. So much so that if they ever lost them, they would consider a vital part of themselves dead. Now, if you had the money, or if you don't, uh, you just think about it. What aspect of your personality would you ensure? What element of your life would you ensure? What are you terrified of losing? What is it that matters most to you? And our passage says this, consider that thing gone. Consider that thing dead because you cannot be defined by that any longer. Look at the cross. Look at the cross. Look at the cross. Your life depends on it. Your entire being must be staked on it. Your actions must be defined by it. Look at the cross. When you look at the cross, you feel the weight of your sin. Look at the cross, Jesus suffering in your place. See the cross as the place where the infinite holy God, where he condescended, coming to the world that he created, being made lower than the people that he created, suffering on their behalf. Because why? Because he loved them. Because he loved you. 
See the cross as an expression of God's love for you. Do you believe that God loves you that much? That he would be put on this instrument of death and shame and humiliation. And if this cross becomes your boast, then everything in your life changes. And I'll close off with this final point. Verse 15, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. The new creation that Paul speaks of here is the new reality we live in through the cross. The cross means that our circumcision or uncircumcision, this does not matter anymore. You cannot build an identity on those things. Those who boast on the cross are governed by a new principle. Look at verse 14. The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. It means that your the way that you engage with the world around you, that changes. It means that you look at it differently. And the only way we'll be able to boast in the cross is if we're able to think of our life and the world in terms of death. And in order for there to be new life, there must be death. There must be death. When Paul here, he says that the, the world has been crucified to us and we to the world, He's saying that the things that used to capture our attention, the things that used to uh, make us go ooh and ah, the things that used to bring us happiness and sadness, they no longer have the same power. Um, if you've ever been in love, you know that that has a power over you. If you've ever seen, if you're into finances or money, when you see this big stack of um, money, I'm thinking about this scene in uh, Breaking Bad where they're in a storage locker full of cash, um, if you've seen that scene, wow, that's a lot of money. If you've ever been captured by a vision of your life or of a person, you think, man, I cannot imagine anything else having more power than that. But there is. There is something more beautiful. There is something better. There's something richer. There's something that's more lasting than whatever it is that you can think of. Those things no longer have the same power over me. If the cross is central to our lives, it means that we don't abide by the values and systems of the world. It means that we don't live for the admiration of the world because we don't need it. We don't have to give in to its values. We're okay with being shamed and persecuted. We're okay with being misunderstood. Can you imagine being misunderstood your whole life? What if that's the case? But what if you knew that God said, I approve of you, my son. I approve of you, my daughter. My love will not end. Donald Guthrie, the commentator, he explains the idea this way. The natural world has, as such, has ceased to have any claims on us. What has a claim on you? If the cross is central to you, it means the world and all its demands and attacks won't phase you, ultimately. It won't cause us undue stress. We won't feel the need to respond to every criticism. We won't feel the need to maintain a certain image. When the world, when people around you demand that you be a certain way, you can rest, your, rest secure in your identity as a child of God. You don't need to defend yourself when you're criticized. Because a cross says that you're even worse than what your worst critic says of you. But you are loved far more than if the critic thought you were the most amazing person in the world. If you are failing at life. You don't need to view your failure as a judgment of who you are because a cross 
allows you to admit that you really did fail, but that failure never needs to define you. If you've been wronged, you can forgive because the cross affirms the justice of God. He will deal with injustice perfectly one day. And in the meantime, you can let God be God. You can let yourself be yourself. You can forgive others as God forgave you through Christ on the cross. If you sense that God is asking you to obey him in certain areas, you can do it knowing that it's not to earn his favor or or to appease him because that's already happened on the cross. You can do it knowing that whatever he's asking of you is ultimately for your good. If you're tempted by greed, you can know that everything you'll ever need is in Christ. Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, that's a cross. How will he not, how will he also, not also with him freely give us all things? If God would give you his son dying on the cross for you, everything else is peanuts and he's happy to give it to you. If you're suffering, you can look at the cross. You can see that Jesus suffered far more than you ever will for your sake. And just as God used the deepest suffering in history for good, you can be confident that your suffering is not meaningless, that you're not alone in your suffering, that God will use your suffering in ways that you can't imagine right now. And that's what it means for the world to be crucified to us. We can live a life of confidence and of trust and happy submission because it doesn't matter what the world says about you or what it throws at you because the cross is your glory. The cross is your anchor. Is this central to our lives? Is this central to our lives? The Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon says this, O ye redeemed ones on whose behalf this strong resolve was made, you who have been bought by the precious blood of the steadfast, resolute Redeemer. Come and think a while of him, that your hearts may burn within you and that your faces may be set like flints to live and die for him who lived and died for you. This is the week before the beginning of Holy Week. How will you respond? Set your focus on the cross. Set your focus on the cross. And let me close with... Um, These words from this well-known hymn, um, The Wonderful Cross. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast. Save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Will you pray with me? Father, we um, boast in a lot of things, and a lot of things fail us and disappoint us, and they make us angry and anxious and despairing. But you give us a cross, and you tell us to boast in that, to base our life on that. And if we do, we can know your goodness. We can know life eternal. We can know joy. And I pray that we would be a people to have our eyes set on you at all times, especially now as we enter um, this, this time of uh, a Holy Week and thinking about Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. We praise you for that. We praise you. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our brother, our Savior. Amen.